Hello and welcome to On the Edge with Eddie, Detangling Our Black Identities. I am your host, Eddie Etty. I am super excited for you to be joining our journey to explore all the different shades of Black identities, have real conversations, and of course, the great discussions. And like always, our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or to prove a point. Exploring Black identities it's all about learning, empowering, giving people a voice to tell their stories. And, you know, sometimes we just have to be a voice for other people who don't feel comfortable speaking out. Hashtag, not all Black people are the same. So today, though, we are talking to my man, Superman, pumped out. Like, if I ever grow up I want my body to look like this guy. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, he works out for looking good sake. And not only that, I mean, the man is brilliant with words. Kojo is a graduate from the uh, fiction program, uh, um, our writer's workshop. Um, He was a recipient of the, I think it was the the Meta Rosenberg Memorial Fellowship and a uh, a teaching writing fellowship. Um, he was awarded the Robert J. Schultz Fellowship in 2016 and a recipient from the, what is it, Ragdale Foundation. I mean, mm-hmm. this man is, when you talk about writing, literature, and all of that, this is the guy you want to be friends with. Um, he recently got a book deal, um, and I mean, a novel. So pretty soon, my man is going to be a millionaire. And <laughs> on here like first, so. on the edge with Eddie, the Tangling Black Identities. I am so excited for you to join us. Welcome, Derek Kujo Inro. What's going on? How are you doing, my man? <laughs> I'm doing well, Ed. Dang, what an introduction. You know, you just, um, I feel like my head just swelled. Like, it needs to. It need, I mean, anybody who <laughs> a book deal. Um, with yeah, no, yeah. it's exciting. It's <laughs> it's exciting, and and just to so the the name that's going to appear on the book is DK Neuro. It's going to be my first, uh, the initials of my first and uh, middle name, Derek Quajo. So it's yep. DK Neuro. So okay, right, y'all call me DK Neuro. Y'all heard? DK. <laughs> oh, that's what's up. Well, so listen, we have a lot of stuff to talk about again because you've done a lot of writing. Um, you've had like a uh, workshop on writing. Um, you've wrote literature on, you know, the African diaspora, the movement of the African people from the native continent to other parts of the world. Um, you know, and so let's start with your background or let's say your diaspora to say um you moved to the united states from ghana when you were 11 years old okay now again at that age you're trying to you know sort of navigate a new world make friends get used to like this place you call america uh again like you know i've talked to other people growing up in ghana you know we saw america as like oh my god this is the place that you need to be right 
So at a very young age coming to America, what was it like for you transitioning into the American space? Oh, that's a, that can be a loaded question sometimes, but take yeah. Your time, take your time. <laughs> <laughs> I moved here at the age of 11. I moved uh, to California, specifically Santa Clarita, California, which is, um well, was at least when I, when I was younger, uber white. It was a very uh, white uh, neighborhood. And I mean, there's a bit more diversity now, but um I wouldn't call it exactly cosmopolitan, if you know what I mean by that. Um, so, um, yes, it was, it, it was, it was, it was white. But if I'm being perfectly honest, you know, I was not so much struck by the lack of diversity as um, the 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 demands on my English speaking skills, if you will. Okay. Yep. yep. There's a way that we speak. You know, I've always, I had always, even even as a child, right? Because in Ghana, there's so much pride in a person's ability to speak the Queen's English, if you. Oh will, yes. Yep. And speak it eloquently. And oh. Uh huh. <laughs> big words if they can. And I've always been a big reader. You know, I've always been a big reader, and I had I was always exposed to so much, so much of the Queen's English that um, I had acquired it, I had internalized it. Right. And there was a very, and I, I, I still think I have elements of this, but because I'm Americanized now and I'm black, you feel me? I'm black now. <laughs> I don't know how to code switch. I don't know how to code switch. Code switch. But I didn't know how to code switch that's, that's then. That's a thing. That's a thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Code switch. <laughs> I didn't know how to code switch then. And specifically when I say code switch, I didn't know how to code switch to speak, uh, to use American idioms. American idioms. So for example, I remember this vividly. Um, so I moved to the U.S. in June. It was, uh, actually I moved to the U.S. a day before my 11th birthday. My birthday is on June 8th. So we arrived on June 7th. So June 8th was my birthday, um, et cetera, et cetera. It was my first summer in the U.S. So then school started in September, you know, and I remember this vividly. Uh, it must have been the first or second day during recess. I was joining a group of kids on the bench and I asked them to push, right? I said, could you guys push so I can sit down? Right. Like, what the hell do you mean push so we can push. sit down? Right? I was like, can you push, push? And, you know, I signaled to them for them to push down on the bench. Then right. there was this kid who was like, you want us to scooch over? I was like, oh yeah, scooch over. I have never heard that in my entire life. What the what the hell is scooch over? Scooch over, yeah. But it was it's 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 an American idiom, you know. Yeah. Idiom. Yep. So the you know that's what I was immediately immediately struck by because you know to be perfectly honest with you, I was thinking yes, I'm coming to America, so I'm going to be so surrounded by a bunch of white people. I think, right. So I was not struck by the fact that I wasn't surrounded by a bunch of black people. I was just struck. I was mostly struck by the fact that I didn't speak what I thought was their English. 
English. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, I speak the Queen's English. I speak the English of white people. <laughs> You think actually, you spoke the proper English. Right? I actually don't. It was proper English. <laughs> exactly. I speak the English of the white people of England. Right. You know, or I should say the UK, but I don't speak the English of the white people. Well, I didn't speak the English of the white people of the US. Right. So that was, that is one thing that has always stuck with me as among my earliest impressions of America. But um, so I lived in California for three years and then I went to boarding school. I went to boarding school and, and I went to boarding school in Andover, Massachusetts. Uh, mm. Out to Phillips Academy, Andover, Andover. Ah. Best, <laughs> best, best decision I ever made. And I say I made that decision because I researched that institution and I said, right. this is where I want to go. And mm. for many, many, many reasons. Among them being the fact that for the first time, of all places that I was going to find diversity, I right. found it in a prep school that for a very long time was decidedly what? White. Hmm. But at Andover, I found diversity. I found home. I found people that looked like me, thought like me, and... It was just, I mean, Andover, those Andover years right. transformed me into the proud man. The, I should say, the things that I am most proud about myself, I cultivated at Andover. Right. Cultivated so, at Andover. What, what, so was it just, this was in high school, right? This was high school, yes, yeah. it was high yeah. school. Yeah. So it's crazy because um, the, the concept of boarding school is, is, is very, it's normal in Ghana, right? You know, uh, in Ghana, exactly. a lot of people go to boarding school. When you get to high school, uh, majority of people go to boarding schools, right? So again, the, the concept of boarding school is normal, but you're in America, which boarding school is not something that everybody knows about or everybody thinks about in America, right? Because of the public schools. So how in the world did you start researching and thinking, I want to go to a boarding school in Andover? You're in California. Andover is in Massachusetts all the way across the world. How in God's name did you come up with that idea to go to that school? And today you're saying, it is because of that decision that you're who you are today. How, how did that even happen? Uh, so, um, I, excuse me. I should add a little bit more context to the story. So my, I, have a, I have a paternal uncle whose reason for relocating to the U.S. was uh, because he got into a boarding school. He didn't go to Andover. He went to the Hotchkiss School. The Hotchkiss School is in Connecticut. Yep. Um, so he he came to the Hodgkin School. Actually, he was a soccer player, much like you. He 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 got into the Hodgkin School, I believe, on a soccer scholarship. Yeah, was an active. Um, but um, and I actually didn't know this. I didn't know this was how he had ended up uh, in the U.S. I believe. Um, I think I visited him in Texas. He he used to live in Texas. But uh, he now lives in Ghana. He's among, which is, I think, a topic that we'll, we will touch on later. He is among the many brainiacs, if you will, who have returned home. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, I think I visited him in Texas. And then it was just in passing. In passing, he mentioned his high school. And that was it. That was it. Wow. Just like, huh, what is this thing? <laughs> that because I didn't, you know, the concept of a high school in the US was not something that I had I had even considered. Right. right? Because when I lived in Ghana, what appealed to me about the schools in the US was that, you know, uh people got to wear whatever they want. <laughs> yep. No uniform. Oh my god, you're right. No uniform. You wake up, you wear whatever you want, and show up. And school, I, right? I thought, oh, they wear whatever the heck they want to go to school. <laughs> and the concept of a boarding school. Now, Andover, we didn't have a dress code. But, you know, the concept of a boarding school in the U.S. had always been about everything I don't want <laughs> because usually they have a dress code, they have a uniform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it was, it's not even anything that I was, like, considering, you know. But there is something about my uncle. And to be perfectly honest with you, I've always been ambitious. <laughs> right. Yeah. My ambitions have... Uh, taken on different forms. But when I was at that age, my ambition was, I wanna be as wealthy as my uncle is and have as many nice cars <laughs> as he does. And this big old house that he has in Texas. So yep. I think what I knew was that I didn't wanna be an IT guy like he was. Hey. You know? What's wrong? Well, what's wrong with there's IT? There's nothing wrong with IT guys, but I, I, an, I, I, I'm an IT guy. And there's nothing I'm wrong IT with guy. IT guys. I knew that <laughs> I I had always I had always wanted to be a doctor, and we'll talk about that too. I uh-huh. wanted to be a doctor, but I was like, huh, maybe it is because of the schools he went to. So I think that's what really sparked that interest in me. Was oh my god, my uncle has this big house and these really nice cars. And he went to this special school. Let me look up these special schools. Schools, right. <laughs> if I can get into any of these special schools. And that's really what it was. And God Almighty, was it special? Was it special? Was it, wow. It was, it was great. It was great. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I might have to send my children to oh that school. Oh, my God. I, I, I mean, the, the, way, the way you're talking about, you know, school. I mean, it, it's it's a um, it's both of, it's the best of both worlds, right? They go into... A boarding school, which they're there, you know, building networks and you know making friends, and they're there the whole time, right? And then like you're learning at the same time, and it's just oh my goodness, yeah. I mean, like I I don't know, I I never actually thought about a boarding school in the United States until you said something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think you know, like that's definitely a possibility. Um, so you went to Andover, um, Andover, you then finish, and then what happened? And then I went to Johns Hopkins uh, in, in hot pursuit of a career in medicine, right? In hot pursuit of a career in medicine. But you know what? You wanted big, big house, cars, and all of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why you went you to You ain't medicine, never yeah. lied, bro. You ain't never lied. That was the goal. <laughs> that big old house and really nice cars, you know? Uh-huh. And I was, and, and you, you know this, you know this. Our, our parents, you know, um, have it ingrained in our minds from the jump that there are few careers that are going yep. to 
uh, allow us to attain that beautiful house and those cars? Right. For me, it was a bank manager. <laughs> I needed to be a bank manager. I was going to be the best bank manager and be in charge of all the money, soon, right? Soon. <laughs> and that's how I was going to make money to buy nice cars and big houses. <laughs> you know, so I, I, went, I went to Hopkins. Again, hot pursuit. You know, I got a, I got a really nice scholarship and my parents were like, what? You got into Hopkins and they gave you a scholarship? You better go. And it's the place to become a doctor. A doctor, yep. You know, um, but I always knew I had a secret. I always knew I had a secret passion, man, because I love to read and I love to write. And my parents, you know, they also knew that because they, they, would see me behind the computer just typing up these stories and they would be like, why don't you go out and play? I'm like, it's not time for play, mom and dad. It's time for me to write my stories. <laughs> like, you know, um, so but, you know, they, they entertained it because they entertained it because they thought it was a hobby. Right. And I remember once my mom said this and it was the first time I had ever heard this word. She used the word multidisciplinary. Mm. <laughs> she said, well, there is nothing wrong with you being multidisciplinary. And I was young and it was the first time I, and, the, and I, didn't even, I didn't even look up the word, but all I know is it was a big word. Again, I had an affinity for big words yep. and it stuck. I was like, oh, mom says there's nothing wrong with me being multidisciplinary. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded good, right? (laughs) Oh, no, this sounds great. Let me continue. (laughs) Little does she know that I would not end up being multidisciplinary. (laughs) Singularly disciplined. I think had she known, she would have been like, actually, no, this thing is. I shouldn't have used that word, yeah. <laughs> because he's going to give up the dream that I have had for him since, you know. Oh. <laughs> because anyway, so at Hopkins, at Hopkins, I, pers- you know, I completed my pre-med requirements. I was a public health, natural sciences major, but I, I pursued my other interests. I minored in what they call the writing seminars, which is a creative writing track. Um, I got a minor in that. And you know what happened? <clears throat> there is this award at Hopkins. It's called the Meg Walsh Award. It okay. is to one graduating senior. It's a pretty big deal. The award now is a $32,000 award for a year of, of, of any work of your own conception, any kind wow. of search any any so it is it is hotly contested right during my time it was a fifteen thousand dollar grant and just the idea of somebody's gonna give me fifteen thousand dollars and my ambitions kicked in my ambition was like i better compete for this like there's no tomorrow (laughs) and i competed like i still remember that proposal i put together it is among the best proposals i've ever put together because i wanted that thing bad and i only wanted it well I i just say my primary reason for wanting it is is i wanted the institution that is Johns Hopkins University, the institution 
my parents yeah. and most of the world know the place where doctors are birthed, right. are, are made, et cetera, et cetera, was going to say, not only is this guy good at the natural sciences, because I did very well. I had a, an excellent GPA, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, but he's also so good at creative writing that we're going to support this ambition with $15,000 so that he can return home to Ghana and just research for this novel. Right. Wow. Okay. And it worked out. Wow. It worked out. <laughs> I was like, yo, this, this shit is really happening. This is really happening. It worked out. $15,000. When I flopped that check in my parents' face. <laughs> You're like, oh, what's the disciplinary or oh not? I got $15,000. What y'all got to say now? What y'all got to say now? I told y'all I could wrap my ass off. I told you. <laughs> oh man! So, so, so yes. did you go back to Ghana though? You, you went, I went back to Ghana. Back to I Ghana. went okay. back to Ghana for two years. I okay. Ghana for two. I did research for the novel, and interestingly enough, even though it, it's taken me what ten years, yeah, ten years later, yep, finished the novel. My research in Ghana heavily, heavily shaped the last thirty pages of my novel. Mm. Tell me more. So it was, it was, so my research in Ghana, I researched uh, the funeral, funerary, I should say, practice mm. of um, the Ashantis. Right, yep. So, um, so before you continue, for those people who'd never heard of the word Ashantis before, um, oh, yes. I think correction, it's, uh, uh, is it Asante? Right, but the white people Asante, can't say Asante, if, so they change it to Ashanti, right? Yes, so tell yes. people what what the Ashanti or who the Ashantis are. Um, oh my god, again, it's now you're like, putting me on the spot. It's, it's, it's an identity <laughs> on its own, right? Um, you know, again, it, it's it's you know, like for me, you know, I my identity in Ghana is an Ewe, right? Um, yeah, Volta region. Um, but an Ashanti is an identity on its own. And, you know, they are what I refer to as sort of like the, 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 the Queens people, right? They're the chiefs and, you know, they, they boast themselves. They're the as, Anglicans and right, Catholics. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so you did research on the, the, the Ashanti, um, right? And it, what did you find out about that, that clan? Well, I'm Ashanti, so I guess I research into my own people. You feel me? Um, But um, I just really wanted to understand uh, the meanings of some of the um, practices that take place during funerals. You know, Ashanti funerals are like three-day affairs. They are um, ornate as ornate gets, or at least they can be as ornate as ornate gets. Um, and they are celebrations. And they are celebrations. And what really interested me was this tension that existed between um, what should be a time of just great pain and sadness mm-hmm. and 
what ends up, but, but, but this, and this time is inherently, I don't want to suggest that this is not an element of Ashanti funerals or Ghanaian funerals Correct. Yep. in general. There is pain, there is heartbreak, there is crying, yep. misery, misery, utter misery, as there should be. It's a death, it's a death of a loved one. So, the, you know, I'm not trying to minimize, excuse me, that <clears throat> at all. But there is a way that is able to coexist with just... With celebration. Celebration yeah. of life. Nope. It's celebration. <laughs> when, when they say a celebration of life, this yeah. is what they mean by a celebration of life. Like it's a three-day affair. It's like a three-day affair. Food, Party, I mean, play, folks play. dancing, yo. Every, folks getting oh, their groove on. <laughs> Everything is involved in that three-day affair, right? <laughs> right. But you're right. I mean, compare that to the United States. You know, I went to a funeral in the United States, and it was seriously the most depressing thing that I've ever gone to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because again, not people didn't show up, and it was only like probably twenty or thirty people that showed up, and they went there. They put the person in the ground. And then everybody left and, you know, just went their own business. And I'm like, went about their own business. I'm like, this is really weird. This is not yeah. a celebration of life. Yeah. <laughs> this is not yeah. how we celebrate someone who just died, right? Yeah. Because yeah. back in Ghana, I mean, we're talking about mm, a celebration. Like, right, folks, I mean, the, the, yeah. And, and, you know, especially the Ashantis. And I may get some yep. flowers for <laughs> But this is true of my people, yo. Yep, yep. We love us a funeral, <laughs> folks. There are folks. So, um, any Ashanti's, yeah, in Kumasi who plan like who who plan their weeks around funerals? Yeah. Well, even on top of that, though, there there are people who 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 pay people or who get paid yes, to mourn, yes. right? So yes. they're professional mourners that show professional up at mourners. a funeral and they have no idea who the death person is and they show up and their job is to cry and is mourn. To cry, is to cry. <laughs> and this goes exactly right. Yeah. So this goes to my point about how much, how much the misery is also part of the whole affair. It is so much a part of the whole affair that it is sometimes commissioned. <laughs> they commission yep. the memory to make sure that it is very much a part of the affair. Affair, right. <laughs> At the same time as the joy and celebration and the dancing and all of it. So I, I, I just find that tension remarkable and you know, as a fiction writer, that's the, I mean, that is our bread and butter tension. Just yep. tension, paradox, like we love that shit. You know, <laughs> am I, wait, am I allowed to cuss on this? I'm sorry. I, I just yeah, okay. You're fine. Be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we love that stuff. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but um, so, yeah, I was I was in Ghana for two years. Um, the first the first year I was there just doing the research. The second year, I um I I did so I worked on some USAID projects, some UN projects, and I was just buying time. I was just buying time for myself um, to get to the point where I could 
I would be able to um, muster the courage to tell my parents, oh, you know that med school thing? It's not happening. <laughs> it's not happening. It took like a whole year. <laughs> and, and, and for some reason, as though God, as though God was, as though God and I were in cahoots. <laughs> because it's like, all right, I got the $15,000 check. And then immediately when I was like, I want a really reputable organization to attach myself with. Here comes USAID. Mm. That, uh, that was a, a short-term project. So after that, here came the UN. And it was just like, dang, God, you and I are really in cahoots. And, and you know, like, um, I was able to make the case to my parents because right. Ghana and actually anywhere, you know, you're 24 year old son is attached to a USAID project. Right, your exactly. Yep. 24 year old son attached to a UN project. It was just like, whoa, yep. maybe this guy is even more than we thought he was, you know? <laughs> but then they always thought, well, he's going to go to med school after this. <laughs> right. There's still a possibility, though, right? Yeah. There's still a possibility. Yeah. And then I did not. I did not. And returned to the U.S. I worked with, I, I, you know, I did a bunch of jobs in the U.S. because I was preparing my applications for <clears throat> MFA programs, you know. So I did all kinds of work. I, I worked as a consultant. I mean, I did all kinds of work. Um, and then I got into the ultimate MFA program in 2014, and I relocated to Iowa City, and I've been here ever since. Mm. I've been here ever since. Nice, nice. So again, so one, I think one of the things that you had mentioned that um, um, for for writers, a lot of writers are influenced by their background, right? So basically, mm -hmm. a first novel can usually be seen as some sort of or some kind of autobiography, right? Mm. Now, now that, that's what you said, and I, I've I've heard you say that. Um, mm. But your your new book uh, or your your novel, um, what Napoleon couldn't do, is basically it follows um, sort of like uh, uh, the complex ties of a Ghanaian family across the group from Ghana to Texas, with mm. you know the pat with a past in I think Vietnam. Um, and mm -hmm. then, you know, expand it into like a larger reflection of conflicts and dissolutions um, that was encountered in the pursuit of the American identity, right? So th there's a lot happening in there. First of all, why, what does Napoleon have to do with anything? Why, <laughs> why what Napoleon couldn't do? And two, is this book really some, do you tie in your own identity and you know, sort of this book. Um, I'll let you answer that, and then we can talk about sort of the different identities, um, you know, that you present. Okay, so if so, actually, this is such an interesting question, and I appreciate you asking it. Uh, if there is anything autobiographical about my novel, or I should say, if there is anything that I can immediately speak to as being autobiographical about my novel, it is the title. Mm, okay. It is the title. What Napoleon Could Not Do is taken from what is the highest form of compliment, um, you know, by a certain generation of Ghanaians. Mm. 
Um, and you can count my grandfather among that generation. <laughs> that, was my, that was my grandfather's highest form of compliment. If you did something great and he wanted to compliment you, this is what he said. He said, and I'm going to insert myself there because thankfully I made him proud frequently. Yep. Um, he said, Papa, which is what he called me, Papa, you have done what Napoleon could not do. Mm. Right? So okay. cool to you, right? right. That, that was his ultimate. And he rarely doled out that compliment. Like you, you had to make a brow, yo. You had to make a brow. Yep. <laughs> and, he, and, and then he would tell you, with you know, with all the pride just emanating from it, Papa, you right. have done what Napoleon could not do. Yeah. And you know, I cherished my maternal grandparents. My maternal grandmother was a queen. My maternal grandfather was a king. And it, you know, my novel, I you know. Um, in one way or another, I knew I was going to honor them uh, yep. with my novel. The title is very much in honor of my grandfather, but it's also very much about um, the ambitions of three main characters in the novel. Um, they, they are all in pursuit of some kind of American identity, right? And that, and that is you know, the achievement, if you will, uh, that they are seeking, that which Napoleon could not do, that great achievement that they each of them is seeking. So uh, there are three characters, um, Jacob and T, a 40-year-old Ghanaian man whose one goal in life is to make it to America, mm -hmm. his younger sister, Belinda and T, She's two years younger, who lives in America as an undocumented immigrant. But what's interesting about her is that she has, I mean, talk about the most hallowed and privileged spaces in the U.S. she has been, right? Um, she went to the Hotchkiss School. <laughs> she went to Williams College. She has a law degree, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like, she's been everywhere. She knows all, she knows a lot of rich Black people because she has associated with a lot of rich Black people. But she, but she's undocumented. She's undocumented in the U.S. Right. Um, and her, her husband, her husband, her husband that, who is 35 years her senior, it was a marriage of convenience. Mm, yep. He is a black Vietnam War vet. And his has, he, as a black man in America, a descendant of slaves, to be more specific. Right. Of course, he has been in uh, a constant fight for American identity. Yes, yep. Perpetual, if you will. <laughs> Perpetual fight, so. What, what, so let me ask you, what is that American identity, though? I mean, because again, you know, black. So again, let's let's talk about sort of the the different identities, right? So there's the the black American identity, right? The mm -hmm. daily struggle of a black man or a black woman, the um, unfair treatment, social injustices, and you know, the police brutality. Um, 
you know, housing, um, you know, if you go want to buy a car, you know, they look at you and you're like, oh, you don't deserve to drive this nice car. Um, you know, if you go to the store, you get followed. Um, again, it, you know, those are all of some of the things that is really just built into the society um, that is working, I would say, working against the, the Black American, right? Or even the, the, the Blacks in America. So the Black, the American identity that you talked about, what exactly is that uh, American identity for a Black person? Well, for each of them, it is, for each of them, it is the, their particular way of defining American um, and a full-throated embrace from America, a full-throated embrace from America. So okay. it's just to get into the door, <laughs> like just to get through, just to get through customs, if you will. Yeah. For Belinda, uh, superficially, superficially, you would look at her and say, oh my God, talk about a full-throated embrace of America, mm. right? She has everything. She's decorated. I mean, decorated. Right. Right? But there are some things that she just can't do because she doesn't have that American legality, documentation. Right, yeah. That's her, right? And then with Wilder, it is a it is a it is a full throated embrace that is almost ghostly, mm. and I use the word ghostly because there is, a, there is an intentional, uh, supernatural aspect right. to his story, um, to his uh, part of the story in the novel. It's right. intentional because to some degree. I think to some degree, there is a, a you know, um, the ghosts of America's past are not really the ghosts of America's past. They are the ghosts of America's present when it comes to black people in this yep. country. Yep. You know, right, they are right. the ghosts of America's present, of America's present. <clears throat> when it comes to black people in this country. So you have full, you have every, you have everything that Jacob wants. You have made it through the gates, right? The ultimate gates, if you will. You have everything that Belinda wants. You have documentation, but you have these ghosts that America just can't seem to shake off. And this, these are all from the same. These so, are these are relatives, right? They're from the same. Well, family. Yeah. Well, yes, they are. I mean, they, they are part of the family. Well, I would say Wilder is part of the family now because he is married right. to Belinda. Yes, yes, they are all part of the family. Right. But yeah. uh, Jacob and Belinda are siblings. Yes. And uh, mm -hmm. so, no, no, please, sorry, go please, ahead. go ahead. Okay. No, I was going to say because I mean. Yeah. Yes. This this is a novel, but this, this is, is real. I life. mean, it reflects. Like, yes, this is real. I life, am right? a writer of realism. I write. <laughs> yes, you know, I am. Um, yeah, I'm. I I don't. As at least as far as this novel is concerned, it's very much steeped in realism. Very steeped 
can right. deal with it. So yes. Mm -hmm. So what would you tell people who um, argue that, well, this is really just a novel and it's stories that you made up and you know there aren't really people in the United States that actually you know sort of have this identity or go through this struggle right um, and you know what what if people are like well you know I, I live in Iowa and I don't see these things <laughs> right what would you tell those people well it's not just a novel <laughs> inspired, I was inspired by truth about you know yeah. the pursuit of American identity Jacob is like a bunch of Ghanaians I know. Belinda is like a bunch right. of Ghanaians I know. Father Thomas is like a bunch of Black Americans I know. <laughs> so right. this ain't no novel, right. y'all. It is, it is a reflection of it's truth. truth. It truth. is yeah. a reflection. Yeah. And most, most, that's what most literary works are, right? Even the ones, right. even the yeah. ones that are, you know, in fact, the most, um, again, my novel is very much steeped in realism, but in terms of genre, you know, we tend to, the industry, the publishing industry tends to categorize novels according to um, genre. So there's like science fiction, which is not what my novel is, but you know, um, right. But even though science fiction is not immediately tagged as realism, oftentimes it is more real than even some novels that are tagged realism. Right. Science fiction reflects so much of reality, just so much. They mirror reality to a significant degree. Uh, oftentimes, again, more than like, novels that are tagged as realism, quote unquote realism. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, this, this, these characters reflect truth about this country that right. we live in, especially as it relates to uh, black bodies, black right, yeah. even black bodies across the Atlantic, on the other side of the yep. Atlantic. That 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 is the that is the dominance of america right it is such a tentacular nation that it affects beyond it, it its effect reverberate beyond its borders so when we are uh when we are swarming the streets in response to George Floyd, right? It's not just happening in America. <laughs> just <laughs> about the black bodies that roam the streets of America. It's yeah. very much about the black. In fact, it is very much about the black bodies that roam the streets of Europe. It is very much, you know, the the the. Um, the xenophobia that is alive in Europe, the racism that is alive in Europe. So many black people in European countries were inspired by what was going on. I think because America's 
original sin, which is slavery, is so apparent to us, right? right. America, uh, subsequent sins, which um, is Jim Crow, which is Reagan. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Right. Uh, right. Which is Reagan, which is, I mean, at all, at all. Right. It's just at all. It's just so apparent to us that we are a little bit more conscious of white racism, microaggressions, fill in the blank at all. Right. Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's happening. And this is, I'm saying this about, uh, Black people who have some kind of connection to America, be they African-Americans or African immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, because we live in America, we are a lot more, we, we, we are a lot more aware and we can pick up on it because um, the sins, the sins, the grave sins of America, slavery, Jim Crow, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, are not too far flung. Right. <laughs> Not, no, you're absolutely right. right. Yep. They are really not ancient history. Nope. Nope. It's just not ancient. It's just not. Yep. Now, this is where this is why your friend, I think, right, uh, and why blacks in Europeans need us to some degree. Right. <laughs> I should yep. say blacks in Europe need us to some degree. Right. Yep. They have been, I don't know how the Europeans have done it. I don't, especially the, the, the British. I don't know how they've done it. <laughs> I don't know how they've done it. But not only have they managed to, because if you go to Ghana, for example, mm. mm -hmm. there is there the remnants of colonialism that we continue to celebrate. Yep. Yo, what the heck is yep. that? This is a yep. remnant of colonialism. Why are we still holding on to this as though it is ours? It is our tradition and something. <laughs> no, it is the tradition of the master. Right. Yep. <laughs> right? or, or at least the person who sought to establish himself as master over us. Right, yeah. And yet, I don't, again, I don't know how the British have done it. I don't know how they've done it, but they've managed to make us think that, you know, it's just part of us and it's okay. Yep. <laughs> and I think they've done the same thing in their country. Yeah, yeah. So if your friend says that he or she is not, or they are not immediately, they don't immediately notice the racism, I think it's because the British, and again, I'm only, I'm specifically speaking about the British because it is, right. um, they are the Europeans I can speak of. of right, on. yep. Um, they have, I don't know what it is, but they have managed to, uh, to have us all exist in this perpetual state of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> no, just no, like, no. where we don't even see the awfulness of it all. Yeah. No, you're not totally right. Again, I was just talking to uh, one of the, uh, the journalists in Ghana who does a lot of traveling, and we're talking about, you know, as a Ghanaian, um, there is white privilege in Ghana, right? Which yeah. is a, it's a, a black country, but yet Amen. when Amen. a foreigner comes into Amen. Ghana and walks and gets into like a any <laughs> state at all, 
we treat them like they're royalty. We worship them, we follow them. We want to wash their shoes. And this is our own country, right? It's our own country. Right. <laughs> so I was like, I mean, is this like super brainwashing? Are we ever free? I, I don't know, man. Whatever it is. I just call it, I just call it cognitive dissonance because I'm just like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know. Because I don't feel, you know, I don't think they're brainwashed because these are highly intelligent people. They're, Extremely you know, highly intelligent. Yep. Highly yeah. intelligent, highly aware. Yep. But anyway, yeah. so I, I yeah, so <laughs> what I would say, I would say with American racism, and also because America has just refused refuse to make amends for its sins right yep right whereas for example in <laughs> yeah, yep. africa there was the truth and reconciliation process which yeah. we need so much in this country my god and they the whole they rewrote their whole constitution um, i mean again i had uh, um dr um uh, dean adrian wing um, yeah. who was one of the individuals from the, the University of Iowa Law School that helped yeah. the Constitution. Um, yeah. You know, we'll talk about all of that uh, as well. And, you know, they wrote in the Constitution that you will not treat somebody different because of their skin color, right? Now, imagine if that was to happen in the United States. If that is ever going to happen in the United States, I mean, well, 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 we have that, but it it does not it, yeah. it, it does not speak it does not speak specifically. You you know what 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 this country has also managed to do is it doesn't it doesn't speak specifically about discrimination. It doesn't speak specifically. There is a tendency to just uh, uh, speak in general terms about this country's atrocities, right? Atrocities. So for example, as recently as, you know, the last few months, there, I, could, I could see that there was, especially among a lot of white people, and these are liberals I know and love, and, have politics very much aligned with mine. Who would use such terms as people of color? People of color. And I was like, nah, bruh, no, no, no. <laughs> this <laughs> George Floyd situation right. affects black. Right. Of course, people of color in general have their, they, I mean, this country, they are, they all experience uh, their own um, forms of discrimination. Of course, this is not, I'm not denying that at all. Yeah. There, uh, there are certain demands for specific language, right? That so often, so often, this country just refuses, refuses to adhere to. Mm, yep. So it reminds me of, you know, the whole uh, discussion of the 13th Amendment, right? So um, the 13th Amendment, I believe, I think section one um, states that neither slavery nor involuntary serv servitude, um, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So basically, they're saying that, yes, we don't want any of that, except if you're a criminal. Now, <laughs> now let's look at 
the prison population. Of course. Let's look right? at the convicted population. Let's look at all of the quote unquote criminals in the United States. Majority of them are black. So yes, mm-hmm. we're saying, you know, yeah. You know, the 30 Man Amendment, again, I think I watched a documentary. If you've never seen it, it's on Netflix. The 30 oh, so good. It's so good. It. It's so good. You know, it's Ava like, Durant yeah. is a queen. Ava. Right, right. So, so it's like, yeah, you know, you put this, this constitution, you write this constitution, but in the back end of it, you indirectly say, oh, yes, but you know what? Let's put this clause in. And this clause mm-hmm. just happened to be majority of black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, it, it, like you said, but it's not the same in South Africa, right? There's no, in America, there's no accountability for yeah. somebody who is, who acts in a racist way against a black person, right? I mean, who is holding people accountable for doing such things, right? Um, so again, I, I again, I, I, I don't want to stop this discussion. I want to continue. I'm gonna have you back, you know, so many times. But um, I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about a black writer, right? As a black writer, do you think you get the same respect as white writers? Well, okay. So recently, there was this publishing paid me thing. Um, where there is a black writer who tweeted um, her advance, the the amount she was paid for her book. And her her goal was to get more black writers to post their advance. And it worked out a bunch of, and it actually turned into people of color, you know, uh, um, but more, more of, um, the advances of black writers like Jasmine Ward, for example, got a lot of attention because it was really startling. I mean, she's a two-time National Book Award winner. And after she won her first National Book Award, and I'm probably going to misquote her, she said she had to fight and fight to get a six-figure deal. Mm, now, right. talk- the white writer had won a national book award that that this I know for sure that white writer would not have had to fight and fight not just fight but fight and fight (laughs) for their first first six figure deal nah that you, you, you know so in terms of in terms of advances, certainly not, because the industry just thinks, you know, that folks who buy books, I guess, just don't want to buy our books, mm. right? They they only want to buy our books if it's if it's in a very specific way, you know. So in terms of attention, there are there are black writers getting a lot of attention, a lot of attention, right? If you if you look at the content of the work, you know they they fit into very specific buckets, right? And this I don't say this to undermine the work in any way. These are some excellent novels out there, man. Right. Uh, yeah. But the novels that really get a lot of attention usually are about slavery. Yep. So the more you engage with black trauma, uh, mm, the more you. Yeah. 
give the reader an opportunity to engage with Black trauma. I think the more appealing you are to the industry and I guess ultimately the more appealing you are to the consumer who tends to be white. Um, so there are these specific buckets that if they can kind of pitch your book into these buckets, you're going to get a lot of attention. You're going to get a lot of promotion, of course, of course, right. you know, um, but there is, I will say this, there are just so many of us coming up now, it gives yeah. me hope, so many of us, so many of us coming up now, and diverse voices, um, yeah. and you know, there, there, there are multiple platforms now through which we can get some attention. Mm, yeah. So if your book is published by a small press, there are ways for you to, to still get attention. In fact, right. Um, right. one short story collection I'm thinking of, uh, The Secret Life of Church Ladies by Disha Filial, which was published okay. a very small press. I think it was published by West Virginia University Press has was probably one of the biggest books of last year, you know, and she is a black writer. Her her book is decidedly black, which I love. Brilliant. I mean, it's decidedly black. There no <laughs> there are no guessing. I mean, wow. the title of the novel is The Secret Life of you know, church ladies, which is a term, which is a very black term. Church, um, yeah. she church, church ladies, lady. yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. she's a church yeah. lady, you know? Yeah. But it was one of the biggest books of the year, you know? And she wasn't published by a major publishing house. So, the, you know, there is good work coming out that doesn't necessarily have to fit into these buckets that the industry has established for us, that is finding ways to get attention. And I'm just, I love that because it gives hope to me and others that are, you know, are yet to get a book deal, others that are yet to enroll in MFA programs, others that are yet to put out their first word and are just ruminating on an idea. Mm, right. So you mean there's hope for me to be a writer too? Because I mean, for all of I mean, I, I've, I've been I've been thinking a lot about doing some uh, um, collaboration with children's group, children's group. Uh, I mean, children's books, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I want to write this whole series of children's books of you know someone like you know someone like me and you growing up in a different country and then coming here and you know sort of just you know talk about the transitions of you know, what it is like coming to America and having this notion or view of America before you get here, mm. right? And then you get here and then it's like, oh, you know, that's not exactly what America is. You know, but, but again, present it or write it in maybe like a third, fourth grade um, level, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, younger kids or, you know, younger generations will actually just read it and be like, oh, wow, this is the, the boy from Africa um, <laughs> to America and made it, and this is what they do with themselves, right? I mean, you know. So again, it, it's it, there's hope. That's that's amazing. That's great. Um, oh yeah, I think I think I think there's you know I think there's hope. I I, I also 
you know, I want to be hopeful, but I also want to be realistic. It's not easy. It, I, I don't want, I don't yeah. want anyone to misconstrue what I'm saying, right? right? I think there's hope. I think, of course, right? Because there's so many people doing wonderful things who are black. Right. Yep. All, all stripes of black. Yeah. Right? The shades, all, all different shades. Yeah. All stripes of black. Like I'm talking <laughs> all kinds of black from Light skin, dark skin. <laughs> like, all stripes black, of black. black. And that's great. And that's great. That's just really great. Yeah, because uh, definitely, yep. You know, there are we are establishing spaces for all all of our kinds. Right. Yep. Right? All Agreed. of our we're establishing yeah. spaces for all of our kinds. Yep. We we you know we 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 exist in multitudes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Hey, listen, you're on the edge with Eddie, detangling black identities. I am with my boy DK Enroll. He just got a book deal. Napoleon could not do. Um, shout out! I can't wait for the book to come out. And you know, one of the 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 most amazing things was when um the book deal was announced, it was announced with, uh, with Elizabeth Warren's persistence, right? So I read that, I was like, oh man, that's my boy in the same sentence <laughs> as Elizabeth Warren. I know him, I give him kinky to eat. You sure do. When you become that millionaire and you're just dropping books left and right, I mean, I want you to remember that you were on the edge with Eddie first. You know, we publicized this and people are going to be buying your books because of this podcast. And uh, um, you should probably drop me maybe a few thousand dollars or perhaps buy me a car or something like that. Um, hey, Eddie, you uh, asking for, you know, that, that, hey, you know what? <laughs> what's I, next? My left I'm, arm? I'm, like, what? <laughs> Just being, I, I'm just you know seeing opportunity and you know trying oh, to God, maybe squeeze funny. it a little bit. But anyway, hey, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, this um, has been again. so much fun. This is you, so Thank yeah, you. absolutely. And I am definitely going to have you back um, with a great friend, um, Doctor Tamika Cage Conley. Again, I can't wait to talk to her. Um, you know, both of you have done amazing work. Um, with, you know, performing and, you know, uh, even I, I also want to talk about sort of the letters that you wrote to each other. Um, you know, I am so excited about more, what's more to come and I can't wait to have more conversation with you. Um, what I want you to do now though, is I am going to give you a minute to send a message out to the world. In one minute, if you can tell the world anything, what would you want to tell the world? I'm going to give you some background music, spit it out. <laughs> this, this, what, what would you tell the world in one minute <laughs> oh my god what would I tell the world in one minute um, bask in the small joys man bask in the small joys because you know perhaps we're in a time where we can't really experience big joys but man, when a small joy comes, bask in it because you never know. You never know. I mean, we are we we are, we are constantly being confronted with death every time you turn on CNN. I mean, yep. Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera, and we're just constantly being inundated by death. And I just, I you know, what has occurred to me in recent months 
or in the last year, actually, is to just bask in the small joys, man. Because the fact, the fact of a mere joy is big enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, now you're preaching. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> you're right. Oh man, that's 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 absolutely beautiful. Uh, again, like we sometimes underestimate the influence of little things. Um, you know, like DK said, appreciate the little things. You know, get to know people, smile at people, just treat people with respect, regardless of their color, their race. Um, you know, their their um, their well, I don't know, their sex, whatever. It's the little things that add up to bigger things. You're on the edge with Eddie, detangling black identities. I'm your host, Eddie Etsy. It's a wrap. DK, it was a pleasure. Until next time, let's do this again, shall we? Thank you. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ed. All right.